0: I was in denial, but as I was aware of the fact that like I was drinking too much, I dove into my career because I was like, I can't be a bad person if I'm a good
1: teacher. Jessica Duenas was Kentucky's Teacher of the Year in 2019, but she had a dark secret no one would have imagined. She was an active alcoholic who couldn't go a day without drinking.
0: And I got very bad in 2018 into 2019 um to the point where I was drinking a fifth of liquor a day. It was that bad.
1: Once she decided to get help, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. After getting sober, Jessica entered into a new relationship with a man named Ian who was in recovery from opioid addiction. In April of 2020, Ian relapsed and died.
0: I relapsed that very same night and basically from April 28th until November 28th, I drank, you know, I barely remember those months.
1: Jessica has not only been traumatized by her own addiction, but the fentanyl poisoning of a loved one as well. She shares how she has survived and is now even thriving in this latest edition of Grieving Out Loud. Well, Jessica, I just wanna say it is such a privilege to meet you. And I can't wait just to dive into your story. So, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much
0: for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. To you know, hopefully, somebody feels something and can get some help from what I share today.
1: I think it's so important we share our stories and your willingness to be vulnerable. I mean, that's huge, and I think people can relate to that. So, I think um, you and I have one personality trait in common. We're probably both overachievers, (laughs) one that I know of anyway, (laughs) Yeah, Um, because, you know, as I said in the intro, you were named Kentucky teacher of the year in 2019 and not anybody gets named, you know, a state teacher of the year. (laughs) So tell me a little bit. And just, I think also, I'm sure you had to overcome obstacles just to complete your education and to, to excel in your profession. Tell me a little bit about what drove you during those years. Yeah, I mean, with teaching, I always
0: wanted to teach since I was a kid. Um, I received a lot of love from the teachers that I had, and I felt like I just wanted to kind of like give that back and experience that with other kids. And so when I started teaching, it kind of was a flow over from being a super successful student. I felt really good when I was thriving in the classroom. And while life was chaotic on the outside, the classroom was this really nice bubble for me where I could kind of like go in and escape, like no matter what was happening in my like personal life. So when, you know, I won teacher of the year, the year after my divorce to give you a sense of like how much I dive into work when my personal life was really difficult. And it's just those years, what would motivate me really would be, A, I love students. Like I love, love, love teaching, honestly, like having relationships with students and like their families has always been really important for me, even now that I've been gone from the classroom for over a year and a half, I still keep in touch with the students I taught and their families. Um, but also the hiding that I was drinking. Um, I had incredible, incredible shame about my addiction to alcohol. Um, Just from childhood, the people in my family who drank, my mom spoke very poorly of them. And I had embodied this idea that if you're an alcoholic, that you're a bad person. And as time passed, and I caught myself having the problem, I was in denial. But as I was aware of the fact that like, I was drinking too much, I dove into my career because I was like, I can't be a bad person if I'm a good teacher. And so my teaching went like way through the roof just for that simple fact.
1: I think people have to understand that addiction can happen to anyone and it's not a character flaw. It's not a moral failing, but you're right. Like you think about even like the previous generation, like your mother or your grandparents and how they look down on people who had this problem and they thought it was within their control. And of course, we do know better now that it's a disease of the brain, but not everybody in society really understands that either. Right, exactly. So tell me about when the drinking started. So my drinking career
0: started in college. Um, I was a freshman and somebody turned 18. It was a friend and these older kids had brought liquor. And I had terrible self-esteem. I was very, very overweight and I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. I felt that the only thing I did well was be a student. And so in this awkward, painful social interaction, when I saw them drinking, I was like, well, I'll try that, you know? So I remember taking my first shot and it was disgusting, but within minutes, the feeling was what I got hooked on. And it was just, you know, which anybody who's drank knows, right? Like you lose some inhibition, you feel more relaxed you know, everything that was kind of stressing me started to melt away. And so it was kind of like, well, if I drink more, I'll feel this even more. And just throughout college partying, you know, I think binge drinking is a problem across colleges anyway, Huge, but huge problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then, but a lot of times most people will graduate and then they'll go back to, you know, they might drink more appropriately, so to speak. Um, But for me, the drinking continued. It just went transferred into happy hours as a working professional, as a teacher. And there was one time one of my colleagues called me out on having like one drink too many. And I immediately felt that shame of, oh my God, like in the back of my mind, like, oh my God, I'm becoming one of those people that my mother talked about. So after that, I just told myself I would never drink and get like drunk in front of others again. And I mean, of course, there were times when it still happened, but. Um, that was really the beginning of my drinking in secret, um, because I still really love the feeling. And I love that, like escape, that escapism really. Um, but I didn't want people to know that I was doing it. And so anytime that I was living by myself, because I was married for a couple of years, but when I lived by myself, you know, I definitely like always drank alone. It, It was just therapeutic. And I got very bad in 2018 into 2019, Um, to the point where I was drinking a fifth of liquor a day, it was that bad.
1: And I think we are, it's a cliche, but I think there's some always truth to some cliches, right? We're only as sick as our secrets. So you're doing this secretly. You don't want on the outside. You're this amazing. And you were, you are, you know, this amazing teacher, (laughs) but secretly you're drinking to cover up what feelings of inadequacy you think, or do you think you just had that chemical reaction to alcohol? I mean, probably a combination.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, you know, once I finally like agreed to get help fully, um, I actually have a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, bipolar two, oh, which I sad. had no idea was happening all these years. And so basically, I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg sort of thing, but yeah. you know, I'm pretty sure that there was some part of self-medicating. And so it felt really good to drink because in a sense it was like regulating me, so to speak. But um, aside from that, I had a lot of environmental factors that were an issue, too. So, you know, there's the biological part of us. But then environmentally, you know, I had major self-esteem issues. I because I had bad self-esteem, I would get into these terrible relationships. You know, I was constantly making very poor decisions outside of like my professional and academic career, which really did feed into these horrible feelings about myself with incredibly low self-worth. And so you tie that with already what's like a chemical imbalance. And it's like a recipe for addiction.
1: I always say that uh, mental illness and addiction go hand in hand in hand, but it is the chicken and the egg thing. Like you said, Mm -hmm. sometimes the addiction will cause mental illness. You know, the substance use will cause it. Sometimes people are self-medicating because they're undiagnosed or it's never, they don't really know what they're dealing with. So your, your teacher, your, t- your incredible teacher, were you afraid that your whole world was going to get blown up by your secret? Yeah. Well,
0: by the time I decided to let the secret out, I was ready. I was, I resigned myself to saying, I don't care anymore. Um, my sobriety date is November 28, twenty twenty. December 3rd of 2020, I published an op-ed in Louisville's um, Courier Journal newspaper where I literally say, hi everyone, like I'm this award-winning teacher and this is how much I've been suffering these past years in secret and I'm done drinking. Um, So literally it was less than a week from my last drink that I wrote this like op-ed, which is a really crazy choice in a way, like wow, Um, But at that point, I did that December fourth, I resigned from teaching, I have not gone back to the classroom since. And yeah, I was ready for things to blow up. I think that there was no way that I was going to make my life into a healthy one without completely destroying everything that I was because everything that I was was based on shame, you know, like I was fueling myself through fear of being caught. So like, the fear of being caught would make me, even if I was hung over, be on my best performance at work because I didn't want to get caught. So shame was such a strong fuel for me that I didn't want to live with that anymore. So I was ready to say, you know what, you can't hold anything over me. No one can, because everyone will know this is my darkest secret. And now you'll know the true me. And yeah, I, I was ready to give everything up. And I honestly did. Why did you give up teaching? Teaching, I mean, first of all, you know, anybody who's aware of what's going on right now, it is very difficult to teach. There's a million different angles to that. And I'll just leave it at that. But, (laughs) um, you know, before then, it's a wonderful career, but it is very taxing if you do it well. And if you care about your students, even if you don't care about your students and you have terrible classroom, you know, it's almost like no matter what kind of teacher you are, it's always incredibly difficult because you're always being asked to do way more than what the job description is. You think you're going in there to teach academic standards and you turn, you know, you're putting on the hat of like social worker, caregiver, you know, nurse, you know, you end up doing so many other things as a teacher that you really do give up a lot of yourself and your time. And like, I'm not a parent, but my colleagues who are parents, I mean, you'd see them giving up time with their own kids for the sake of making sure that everything at work was okay. So for me, I realized that for as long as I was teaching, I was never going to be able to really stop and take care of myself. And when I realized the extent of how bad my drinking was, I knew that I had to let go of the teaching. I had to let go of the career because I really needed to focus my energy on myself. Like my years of taking care of other people, they had to stop. Like that was it.
1: Wow. Well, I congratulate you on your 17 months of sobriety. Thank you. But a lot happened right before that 17 months and before you stopped teaching. So um, you how many times have you been, have you tried to quit drinking or have you seek have you sought help?
0: Yeah. So I mean, in terms of how many times did I say I'm done and like drank again, you know, infinite. But in terms of hospitalizations from the time that I decided to stop drinking in the fall of 2019, up till the fall of 2020, there are about nine hospitalizations. And when I say that it's a combination of emergency room visits, you know, two, three day stays in hospitals, um, five day stays and detoxes up to um, a five week uh, rehab program. Um, So I kind of did the whole gambit of attempts to stop drinking.
1: And you also have another really tragic story in the midst of all this, Uh, You had met a guy uh, after your divorce named Ian. Tell me what happened with Ian. Yeah. So
0: Ian, his, you know, so it's funny. I realized when I rescheduled the interview today is actually the two year anniversary of his death. And initially I was like, oh, let me not do the interview. And I was like, you know what? He always told a story and he always wanted to help other people. And I know that by me telling my story, I know I'm helping. And so, I, you know, yeah, and I, I, I was like, I'll do, it. you know, I was like, I'll do it because he totally would have been like, do it. Um, so I met him, I wanna say the winter of 2019 into 2020. And I knew he was in recovery and I knew that his drug of choice was opiates. And, you know, with opiates, you spiral very quickly into really strong stuff like heroin. And, um, you know, things were great in the beginning. I remember and he wasn't using when you met him, he wasn't right, right. Oh, yeah, he was Mm -hmm. sober, yeah. And you know, I remember in the back of my mind having this inkling of what would happen if he would relapse. But when I saw him, you know, he was so healthy, he was in school to become a social worker, you know, everything in his life looked great. And so, in my mind, I was like, Well, he's doing great. And you know, we do recover, there are many people who live. The rest of their lives without touching whatever it was that was that they were addicted to so why couldn't he be that person right so you know i decided he's a wonderful person i'm not going to let you know his past affect like my relationship with him so i decided to go forward with the relationship and it was great um then COVID hit and when COVID hit in, in you know spring of 2020 we decided to basically like live together because that would be best with everything shutting down around us in terms of the quarantine at that time. And, but suddenly, you know, if you're in recovery a lot of us depend on recovery groups and programs and those spaces were no longer there for us. So things did start to get shaky in terms of the support that we had. And I didn't realize, you know, he was really good at hiding that he was starting to struggle and he relapsed in April of 2020 and, you know, he would, he relapsed and it wasn't like crazy and he came back from it and he, it felt like he was getting back on track. So I was like, okay, good. But then, um, towards that last weekend in April, he relapsed pretty hard and it was probably, you know, I feel like there's blackouts in my head because of how traumatic that experience was. Um, but you know, he lasted about two to three days before he, overdosed and passed away and i found him and that was on tuesday april 28th of 2020 i think it was a tuesday and you know i found him um i had a feeling something was wrong he said he was going to the gas station and then he didn't come back and you know he even though his apartment was empty he still had the apartment he hadn't turned in the keys so i went you know and i called the phone so i could hear the phone in the apartment i was banging on the door Um, a neighbor came out and was like, what are you doing? Are you trying to break into the apartment? I was like, no, someone's in there. He called the police on me, which was fine because obviously like we needed, you know, assistance and my brain was not functioning. I was just like a hundred percent like focused on getting into that apartment. And, um, you know, by the time the police came and they got into the apartment, you know, he had passed away. So I relapsed that very same night. And basically from April 28th until November 28th, I drank, you know, i barely remember those months, you know, that's basically how bad it was.
1: Well, Jessica, I mean, I'm so sorry for the loss of Ian. And we know that overdose, this is where record numbers during 2020 and into 2021. I mean, and I think about the collateral damage, like you are of these overdose deaths. I mean, you did suffer the collateral damage, you know, um, being traumatized, you know, by finding that person. And then relapsing yourself. I just think, I mean, there's just so much pain and heartache that goes along with all of these overdose deaths.
0: There is. And I think one of the things that's really hard about it, it, you made the point earlier that anyone can become addicted and anyone really can. So Ian was a veteran and he was injured when he was in Afghanistan. So he was prescribed opiates, And that was like Mm -hmm. the beginning of his journey, you know, down the addiction path. And so, you know, when I hear about all these deaths, there's some people who are very judgmental. And I'm like, no, these are people who I don't know their different stories. But, you know, I can't imagine a single person who wants to be in those states of desperation.
1: No, you know, no, nobody, no chooses nobody. nobody chooses no that. Nobody chooses that. Yeah. And especially uh, with illegal you know, alcohol is maybe a different matter. It's the slower killer But with illegal drugs right now, the fentanyl that's in everything, I mean, it is just, it is playing Russian roulette for sure. And it's just such a dangerous time.
0: And, you know, when they did the autopsy, they found fentanyl in him. So, Uh, you know, fentanyl has just been killing so many people, so many people.
1: So you went through this period of relapse and not remembering all those months and then you know, hit that November, what changed? What was different this time?
0: Yeah, so November, um, I had come down to stay with my sister in Florida. She was really worried about me being alone in Kentucky, which is where I was living. So when I came down here, I relapsed in, you know, typical fashion. And when I relapsed, um, she took me to the emergency room. And in the emergency room, they, um, they used the Baker Act which here in Florida is if a person is a danger to themselves or others. They can be hospitalized in the psychiatric space for, I think, 72 hours. So they enacted the act with me and I went into a psychiatric facility, which when the attending psychiatrist there met me, he was like, there's no way that like, there's something else going on. He was like, there's no way that you are doing all the right things to get sober and yet you still keep drinking. And when he realized that I wasn't taking medication or anything like that. So we did a full evaluation and that's when he was like, you you know, you have bipolar two. And initially I was like, oh my God, like, what does that mean? You know, like on top of drinking now it's bipolar two, you know, I was really overwhelmed. And he was like, there's nothing wrong with having bipolar two. He's like, it's just a condition where you will go through waves of highs and lows. But when it's bipolar two, it, you kind of go through more depressive waves. And so he's like, you know, medicine is going to help avoid those like major lows and will also help avoid any highs to just give you like some evenness. And he was like, and once you take medicine, he's like, I promise you, you're going to be able to work on yourself and then feel better. He's like, you just need to get physically like on a baseline and then everything else will come. And, you know, at that point it had been eight months of just constant chaos. And I was really just tired of fighting. You know, it's like, I wasn't dying, but I couldn't keep living that way either, you know? And so I was just like, you know what? I'll try this because clearly like I'm not meant to pass away because otherwise I would have already, but this life that I'm living, I'm done with it. I can't. So I started the medication and yeah, I mean, within a couple of weeks, it started to kind of kick in to the point where by the end of November, I didn't have that like crazy compulsion to like run and drink to like escape my feelings. Uh Um, It took a lot of support, a lot of support. I was like, not by myself, like at all, you know, um, during that time, as I was like getting myself together. And, um, you know, it was like day after day would pass. And I was like, Oh, my gosh, I'm not drinking. I'm not drinking. And, you know, 30 days just kept going. And I was, you know, over time, I just felt, I couldn't believe it. I really couldn't. Um, but yeah, that's basically how it happened in terms of like the change.
1: Um, what is the bottomless to sober project that you started? Yeah. So
0: bottomless to sober, which I definitely need to give it more TLC. (laughs) Um, I was trying to find a really productive way to deal with my grief. And it's funny because you're, you know, you do podcasts and for me, I also wanted to tell people stories, you know, like on the site, you can see a video of Ian one time that he was on like local news in Louisville talking about like, you know, being a veteran and like his journey with recovery and addiction at that time. And I was like, you know what, like, he always told stories. And I was like, I need to do the same. And I was like, I already decided to tell my story and tell everybody about me. So why not like, find people and tell their stories? So that hopefully like somebody will see it and feel inspired to maybe get better. So it's been a combination of things that I've written pretty much about like my own journey with also like different people's stories that most people who I've known personally, there's been a couple of people who I've like connected with um, through social media over this time period. Um, Recently, I'm asking people to like submit things. So I have like two people who right now are working on like their own drafts of their own stories to submit. Um, but yeah, that's basically been it. It's been, I just wanted to put the message of hope and, you know, and also kind of like present different modes of recovery, because I think a lot of times people think there's just one way to get sober and I've come to find there's lots of different ways. So it's just been a really awesome way to take the grief and make it productive.
1: Yeah. I think that's, you know, turning heartbreak into action. I always say, or purpose into the pain, you know, that helps me. Um, doing the podcast, writing my blog, uh, helping other people is almost selfish because it helps me so much deal with my grief. Yeah. So you're dealing with grief and addiction. I just, I wonder what you think about all this attention that you obviously that teacher of the year title (laughs) helped um, fuel some of this attention that your story got. How have you handled that? How has that been for you? (laughs)
0: It's been more quiet recently, which is great. Um, You know, in the beginning, again, when I published that first, or when the newspaper, The Career Journal published my article December 3rd, I was terrified. I was like, did I make a mistake? Like, everyone's going to hate me. Like, I genuinely thought that it was going to be this awful response. And I remember seeing the first email and it was like, congratulations. And it was from some random person. And then it was like, my email blew up. And I really received nothing but love. And at times it's, it's just been really affirming. Like it's the attention that my story's gotten. And then, you know, there's been a lot of quiet attention, like people who are very discreetly sharing with me that they're getting sober. They're just not comfortable being open with it, but they'll like send me like pictures of their like tokens and things like that as their like sobriety progresses Um, it's really given me a sense of purpose, you know, like my purpose before getting sober, I thought my purpose was just to teach. And I feel like now my purpose has shifted to really to be like a messenger of hope and help other people.
1: I get that. I get that. I always thought my purpose was just to be a journalist, but I really have Mm -hmm. a mission of my heart, you know, to prevent other families from going through what, you know, Ian's family went through what my family went through. And I just think, I, I love it. They were opening up the conversation and that I think by you even talking about it really reduces the shame and the stigma for other people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Especially because of the teacher part, because of the fact that like, you know, the teacher of the year part, I think really hits the nail on the head to the concept that anyone can develop an addiction. Like you don't have to be you know, any kind of terrible person, you know, literally anybody can have this, including like the person who's teaching your kid who loves your kid can also be suffering secretly. And I think that when I came out with having this huge title, and then saying that this is what I've been going through, I think that that really did help a lot of people feel less bad about themselves, or even like look at their family members or loved ones a little differently, who they see who struggle.
1: Right, right. Because it affects the whole family. What have you learned along the way? And what advice do you offer to other people, maybe dealing with a similar struggle?
0: I think one of the biggest things that I've learned along the way is that it really takes a lot. It's like a daily thing to stay sober. And I don't think it's one size fits all at all. You know, I think that a lot of times, I have had to, you know, I've like started therapy and that's been really powerful. And, you know, like working with like a silver silver mentor sponsor, things like that, like all these different bits and pieces have really come together to help me. But a lot of it has been having the courage to recover in a way that's working for me. Like I've almost adopted the like concept that I'm like, well, if I'm not drinking, then that this works for me. Because, you know, for example, like I'll go out dancing, people are drinking everywhere. And some people would say, no, you shouldn't be doing that. But you know what, I want to be a functioning person in the real world. And I want to dance. So like, basically, I've learned how to be really courageous and just kind of like, do what feels right. And kind of like trusting myself more, you know, all those years that I drank, something inside of me was telling me there's something really wrong with me, but I would ignore myself. And so I'm done ignoring myself. And I'm being true to myself. And when my heart told me I needed help, I went for it. Um, When my heart told me to speak my truth, even when it's really uncomfortable and makes me anxious, i have gone for it. And so what I would tell other people is you have that voice inside, you know, if you need help, everyone, I think everyone knows if they need help, it's a matter of accepting it. And life gets so much easier when you listen to yourself and that voice that's trying to save you. Your life gets so much easier, even though it's really hard in the beginning, it's choppy in the beginning, but I wouldn't change this life that I have today for anything. And when I think back on those days of when I drank, I, I don't know how I did it. I don't know. And I don't think I could survive living like that again. If I ever went back to that, it's just, I'm very grateful for like my life today.
1: Well, I'm so happy that you're in such a better place. And thank you so much for having this conversation with me. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening to the latest episode of Grieving Out Loud. Connect with us online at Foundation. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider giving us a positive review. Until next time, wishing you faith, hope, and courage.